didn't understand value until I was in a PR space and I was like, oh shit, like it's so much more than what you're selling and what somebody else wants. It's that psychological narrative of why it even exists and who needs it and what will happen once you have it. So you can like create value systems and the cost somebody pays for something is indicative of how much they want it, not how much it's worth. Light bulb moment. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders-to-be. We're chasing down the most successful female entrepreneurs from around the globe, not only to hear their life story, but to extract their knowledge and world-class insights. If you're curious and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for some hard-hitting truths, a dose of inspo, and learnings you can apply right away. Strap in. Our guest in this episode is a multifaceted businesswoman. Lil Ahenkin is a DJ, media personality, author, and the founder of e-commerce gift store Flex Factory. She's built a cult following by leading tough conversations around race, intersectionality, and entrepreneurship. She's unapologetically herself, and this conversation is a great lesson in how to build relationships with your online audience and sustain them in a genuine way. This approach has helped her land epic partnerships with brands like Spotify, Hey Tiger, and Fluff. And she's even been named Young Australian Entrepreneur of the Year by Instagram. This is a really informative and eye-opening chat with Lil. Welcome. Oh, you're welcome. Welcome to <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to Someone here. had to say it. Yeah, I know they did. So this is where we want to start. You are an incredibly creative, unique individual. Mm. You've got a couple of personas going on, mm-hmm. um, which we'll dive into. Where we want to start is with Flex Factory. I mean, what oh, yeah. you do for a living is you sell, part of what you do is you sell online card games, right? For mm-hmm. people to have fun. You're all about having fun, but having conversations as well. Yes. Making people smile, obviously opening up some pretty, you know, deep, interesting chats, which Anna and I are all about. We're into it. Love it. So what's the demand like for adult fun right now? Pretty high. And especially during COVID for some reason. I don't want to say some reasons as if it's not obvious that like in a pandemic when you're faced with your mortality and you have to reflect on who you are and what you like and what you want to do and what makes you happy that you regress to some sort of like childlike activity, playing a game, painting, crafting or whatever. So it's actually quite high. And the premise of the games that I make is generally to have the conversations you want to be having but don't feel like you have the agency to have. So it's not every day you can be like, hey, what do you think about, like, morality? It's a bit hectic. It's interrogative. <laughs> so you're like, why don't we play a game that asks us to think about these things mm. that we might not otherwise? So the demand is high. The only time that you've been asked about morality was when you want to date with a guy. I was on a first date. And he asked me how I felt about dying. Like a philosophy bro or just like an and interesting He was like guy. a, no, I mean, he was, an, he was an interesting bro. He was an yeah. interesting bro. But it was quite jarring, if I'm mm. honest. Anyway, thanks for bringing that up. No, that was an interesting I get one. it though, because my own uh, boyfriend told me that my dating style is very interrogative. And I was like, of course, like mm. I'm not here to humor you. Mm. I feel like it's very easy, especially when you're a straight woman dating straight men. It's very easy to entertain them, humor them make them feel exciting and special. I'm like, I'm not here for that. Mm. I'm trying to get to know you. And if it's not 
gelling in the way that I want, then I'd rather not be here. Right. So I'm getting through my sort of like roller deck of questions. Yeah. Yeah. That are in my brain. So you're obviously a curious person. Mm-hmm. And as you said, you like to interrogate. Is that where the idea for these cards came from? Or was it more of a result of listening to your community or talking to your community and figuring out, actually, this is something that I can provide them? Mm, it's two-pronged. I guess the first is I'm in a very precarious position of commodifying like myself, my body, my being to make money, which is very tiring and I probably wouldn't recommend it. Mm. So I've always wanted to move into a product-based space that could utilize some of the reach or the social clout that I've generated but wasn't really reliant on me being the person in the room. Um, So that was one side of the idea. And the second side was on my podcast, Bobo and Flex, we get a lot of feedback that we're really good at having conversation. And so people would ask, how can I replicate this in my own spaces? And in the beginning, so like three years ago, I used to say like, just ask questions, which I can now understand is super condescending for someone who doesn't know how to ask the right questions for the right answers. Mm. So I used to write questions in my iPhone notes. And if someone would DM me, I would be like, okay, I'll send you some questions. No biggie. So it was 10 people, 20 people, Mm. 100 people. And then it was like incessant. Hey, questions, questions. And then it got to the point where people who had already received the questions would say, I've already got those. Do you have any more? <laughs> you already sent me those ones. If you scroll up, you would know that you had sent those oh to me. Oh my God, the so I'd be like, okay, <laughs> like, first of all, I don't work for you. And second Sorry. of all, like, think of your own question. Damn it. <laughs> so it was when those two things happened, I was like, well, I... I was getting frustrated a little bit because Mm. I felt as though I don't want someone to rely on me to be their source of anything. You know, I want my audience to feel self-sufficient. So me generating those questions was just like me doing half of the work so you would do the other half. So then I was like, I want people to invest in me like I'm investing in them because for them it's like just questions. But for me, it's like maintaining these conversations with hundreds of people, being empathetic, listening. Like it's all of these Mm. things, soft skills, as they Mm. say, that weren't being uh, validated. So I was like, I'll make some merch, I said. And so I made about 200 and something, 250 games. And I was like, I'm selling these games. If you want more questions, you can get them there. And they sold out like the day that I put them out. And I was like, okay, well, that's it. <laughs> sorry if you didn't get any. That's done. Like it's just bye a fun mind. thing. I was trying literally. I'm like, bye bye. Drop. sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone's like, well, no, seriously. Like I missed out. Are you going to bring them back? And I was like, well, no, I'm, I don't sell card games, but like I'm so many other things. I just mm. don't sell card games. But then people were like harassing me. I missed out and you said that there'd be enough for everyone. And so had to go back, print some more, package them, send them. And it got to the point where I was like, I don't have the capacity to sit in my living room and put like cards in mailers and send them to you. Like, Mm. it's not what I'm interested. So I'm like, I'm not doing it anymore. And then I was like, wait, but I want to run a product-based business. Ooh. (laughs) So this might be a thing. Hang on. (laughs) So then we redesigned the packaging. We got like legit packaging for these cards as opposed to putting them in mailers. Then we got them reprinted in a higher card stock. We got photography. We put them out. And now we have Flex Factory, a card game business. Isn't that bizarre? It's cray cray. I mean, you also have other things as well, right? You've got homewares. You've Mm -hmm. got a whole bunch of stuff. A whole bunch of stuff. 
through the loop. <laughs> what was the the light bulb moment or that lightning strike when you were like, oh, I do want to own products and sell products? Well, I've always been an entrepreneurial person. Mm. So I was that person in high school being like, I'll get you these kind of lollies from a wholesaler and then I'll bring them to school and I'll sell them for a little bit more. Or I used to make jewellery or I used to make playlists that I charge. So there was always something happening. And I'm just a money motivated person. And I guess that comes from living in an environment where money was always spoken about. There's not enough. We can't do that. We don't have money. And I was like, oh, gross. So (laughs) my mum would say very often, like, if you want to do things, you have to have money and you need to understand that, like, things are expensive. And so she would tell me, like, this is how much our rent costs and this is how much I make. So you have to understand that when you ask me for a new phone, that's like how many weeks worth of rent. So do you want to live here or do you want to have a new phone? And so suddenly being able to kind of reconcile Mm. these vague images is very clear. I was like, fuck, I need money. (laughs) It's really interesting because we often have a conversation with founders who are either very creative Mm. or very commercial and have a strength in one of those areas. Mm -hmm. You're obviously super creative. Do you also have that really strong commercial kind of nous because of your upbringing and kind of the, I guess, money values that were drilled into you at a young age? Absolutely. But I would say that didn't come to fruition until I started working in PR. I didn't understand value until I was in a PR space and I was like, oh shit, like it's so much more than what you're selling and what somebody else wants. It's that psychological narrative of why it even exists and who needs it and what will happen once you have it. And so I would say that all of these sort of skills I had were very much compartmentalized. Mm. Like I was creative so I could make my room cute and sew clothes and have cool hair. And I was commercial because I wanted to have stuff to help me do those things that made me look cute and feel cute. But it wasn't until, you know, being 18, working in PR that I could bridge that gap. And I was like, well, so you can like create value systems and the cost somebody pays for something is indicative of how much they want it, not how much it's worth. Light bulb moment. How did that play out in your life, having that realisation? What changed? So when I was between like 18 and 20, maybe 21-ish, I was working as a junior publicist and also doing social media management, which I only ever went into that field because I was one of those young people that people validated a lot, gifted and talented, they would call her. But I didn't actually know what I wanted to do. And I don't think I'm very good or I don't have expertise, but I am good at picking things up and just, you know, running with it. So I got to that point at the end of high school and I was like, fuck, I don't know what I want to do. And I don't think I have the skills or the wherewithal to do the thing that I should do. Everyone's like, go study law, go study medicine. And I'm like, babes, I only just, like, just passed high school, like a 55. (laughs) Everyone's like, you should apply yourself. I'm like, you know, I get it. They're kind of like, but you're always engaging in class. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm just here for the banter. Like, I'm not not retaining this information. (laughs) So I used to watch The Hills a lot, which was a reality TV Mm -hmm. show. And those girls worked in PR. So I was like, I can work in PR. I want to look good and wear heels every day and chit chat. So that's why I started working in that field. Lo and behold, it's a very difficult skill and a very difficult industry to be in because mm. you have to create value systems without really exchanging money or without having a budget to do so. Terrible. So at this point, I was like, I can do whatever I want. I can only do so much because I don't have the skills. And then it was in that point where I was like, maybe I'm thinking too much about work. I'll get a hobby. And that hobby was becoming a DJ. 
and becoming like a casual DJ mm. to a full-time DJ in six months, that kind of put into perspective that I'm able to utilize all these really like niche skills that I've compartmentalized and bring them together to create a value system. Because I don't think I was a good DJ until four years in, maybe three. You know, if we're going to be honest, you know, like I feel like people kind of like, you look great and you've got friends who have come come to these events and you're good at marketing yourself. Mm. But the actual skill, nobody was telling me to nurture that. They were just like, keep doing you. Come with the green hair next time. People loved that. You know, make sure you come with the cute outfit. So it was very bizarre. So, I mean, you were essentially building a very strong personal brand Mm -hmm. and that also came with an alter ego, Flex Mommy. Mm -hmm. I guess how much of the value that you talk about and the value systems that you were creating Mm. were a reflection of you and what you were building Mm. as this persona and this personal brand? Mm. So Flex Mommy isn't a persona. It's literally just a name because I couldn't be DJ Lil. So when I was like, I'm going to be a DJ, it was like between like teaching myself on YouTube and being like, hey, friend who promotes at this club, can I play? And they were like, yeah, sick, what's your name? And so me and my friends did a round table and we were like, what's my DJ name? And then we went around, we're like, okay, what phrases can we use? What can we do? And so that's how it came to be. If not for needing a DJ name, I wouldn't have ever been flex. So that was just a, um, like a means to an end, if Mm -hmm. anything. And there's a lot of studies about why having an alias or a moniker is a really good brand builder because it separates you from like the humanness of oneself and it also elevates you in a way that people aren't used to expecting. Mm. Like I said, DJ Lil, who's she? Flex? Wow. What's her background? Mm. Did she just spawn out of the environment? <laughs> Does she have parents? <laughs> like when Wish was she magical born? creature? <laughs> and then suddenly people start to almost create this narrative around why you exist and what it means and, you know, but who's the real you? What's behind it? It's all the same. I used to try to explain to people that the only reason why I wanted to maintain this, like, influencer job title is because it literally pays me to be myself. Mm. The issue I found with working in a traditional environment is that being yourself is secondary to who you are for that company, And even if you have the skills and you have the wherewithal, it's how you use it for that company, how they need you to channel those skills for their benefit. Didn't really work with me as someone who was just so caught, like concerned with who I was. And as a creative person, I'm like, well, I can't wear certain things. That's not me. I can't speak in a certain way. That's not me. I don't listen to that music. That's not me. So working in an environment, someone's like, it doesn't matter who you are, babes. Just do the job. Couldn't do it. So the whole point is like, the only reason why I maintain doing what I do is because I get to be myself and mm. get paid to do it. And I'm allowed to exercise all these really grandiose ideas because I'm me. And that's the standard I've created. That's really interesting and something that I think a lot of our audience will relate to because a lot of our audience, you know, start to build their own businesses. Potentially it doesn't have to be an, you know, an influencer or mm. public facing business, but a lot of people are building businesses because they don't fit within that sort of corporate mold. Mm. And so, yeah, I think it's a sort of a story that a lot of people will relate to. Definitely. Yeah. And the other thing that I picked up, you know, you said you were able to kind of control and create that narrative mm-hmm. and so many brands lack 
that mm. from the get-go. You know, you really have to be clear about the the, the narrative that you want to build, whether mm-hmm. it's a brand or a business, a personal brand. How much of it did you control from the get-go? Like, is this Lil? Is this a reflection of who you are? Everything that you do is 100% who you are? Or have you somehow controlled that narrative from the beginning and you're taking us in different directions? Mm. That is a really good question. As somebody who's like pretty fixated on this concept of like personal identity, mm. who I am, if that's purely internal and intangible, or if that's tangible and physical and I can write it down, it's something that I really struggle with. And so I would say in the early stages, and like I've done all the personality tests in the world, so much therapy, love it, love it. Who am I? I love astrology, love it. So in the early stages of like being flex, right, part of me was like, how do I take the, not even, it was more like reverse engineering. It was taking what people were resonating with and amplifying that or almost being mindful of the narrative that was being shaped because of who I was and then riding that wave. So naturally, being someone who is like fat but also confident, everyone's like body positivity. She exists in this space to validate and empathise with those who've always felt like they can't be confident and blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, whatever. That's not a bad thing for someone to project onto me. We can roll with it. It's not me claiming it, but I didn't shut down that narrative because it benefited me. Similarly, like I used to, on social media, I used to write in all capitals for fun. I'm a creative, I'm kooky. You know, I can write in capitals. And the amount of journalists who would write or interview me and say, and her writing in capitals is a way for her to show you that she's here to take up space and make sure her voice is heard. I was like, this is ludicrous. It's honestly absurd Mm. that I could just exist. And by virtue of existing, all of these narratives are thrust upon me. And granted, they're fine. I can deal with it. But it only was until maybe five years in that I was like, okay, hold on. And the way I did that was control my own narrative very specifically. So it it became almost encouraging two-way like feedback and communication with my audience, putting heaps of context behind who I am and why I do it. Having the podcast speaking at length, not letting people fill in gaps just because they could. And so to your point of like, is this the real flex? Well, it's almost like, is this the real Lil? Like I just am allowed to kind of move and flow as I move and flow because I'm able to change my narrative on my own and I'm not relying on like the media to be like, okay, now we get what she's doing. She can change. But it's also really bizarre because I feel as though and I'm only just coming to this realization because like therapy that, <laughs> that a lot of existing in this media space is this idea of like controlling the narrative, making sure that I'm being perceived as intended. And however many years in, six, seven years in, I've only just realized that you actually cannot. And so I think that part of the motivation with the podcast and the conversation card games was to do just that, fill in the gap to make sure that I was being perceived as intended and that people can also have that kind of agency to also be perceived as intended. But then it doesn't matter because I could tell the story of Flex a thousand times and one person will listen. I can tell the story of why I created the game and nobody really cares because if it doesn't fit the greater narrative, it's just like in and out. Mm. I want to go back to something you just said then around creating a two-way dialogue with your audience Mm -hmm. and creating community and conversation with them because I think that is something that you do exceptionally well, like exceptionally well. And it's something that brands really struggle to do. 
How, how do you do it? What is the secret kind of source behind, yeah, creating that dialogue with your community? I like the phrase secret source. Mm. That's good. Visceral. Mm, I love A copywriter. <laughs> the secret source is getting out of the environments that force you to conform. And here's the thing. When I worked in a traditional space, I didn't have the secret source. I used to copyright in a generic tone. I used to speak in a generic way. I used to communicate who I was in a very generic way because that's the framework that I had allowed myself to exist in. And my motivation was never like, let's start two-way conversation in hopes that my audience will humanize me and then they will treat me better. It was like, I want to be heard. And I want people to actually know what I'm saying, why I'm saying it, what I care about, why I don't care about. And the literal only way to do this is to just do it. Mm. And so I think part of like the misunderstanding is that it didn't work for so long. Mm. For the longest time, people were like, stop with the ideas, babes. Like, why are you incessantly sharing in all this context? It's an outfit. You put it on, relax. Like, by that, I mean, I would post on Instagram and I would you know, write my whole long caption and I would say how I feel and, you know, what I was experiencing. And the comments would be like, great skirt. Where's that bag from? I love your skin. And so it wasn't as though, (laughs) it wasn't as though my audience at that time suddenly shifted and followed suit. I just generated a new audience who resonated with the way I was engaging with them and decided to engage back. I think it can be a slippery slope though, because I do notice that Brands, personal brands, corporations, everyone in between is on this whole journey of authenticity and transparency because as we've seen, it's been validated a lot, but I don't think people are recognizing that it only gets validated if you're relating to people in the way they want to be related to. Mm -hmm. And like, that's so intangible. You don't know what Mm -hmm. that is. You don't know what you or what you're being is doing for your consumer until they tell you it's not actually working. So for example, like I've had some like other, how would I phrase them? Let's call them other creators in the space, Mm -hmm. right? Who are kind of like, I am so sick of hiding behind my work. I want my audience to almost, you know, buy into me as well. So if I decide to, you know, pivot left or pivot right, they're also with me. And they start and they'll be like, I'm going to talk about politics. I'm going to talk about identity. I'm going to talk about sex. And your audience is like, can you stop? (laughs) Please. We're here for the art. Talk about the art. And so there's part of you that has to realize that although you're here and controlling the narrative for yourself, you also exist as like a 2D entertainment bubble for the person who's consuming you. So sometimes this push for advocacy and transparency feels really self-serving because you haven't got the audience who cares about what you think in that way. So it's like, people like tomorrow if I get on my Instagram story and I speak to the camera that's going to go really well because I'm being authentic and transparent when in reality you're shocking the system of your audience because they're not used to that and also it's regarded negatively like can you imagine if you saw a friend of yours who doesn't exist in this media entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. space talking to their phone camera Mm -hmm. yeah it's weird it's weird weird. when you're like what who's this for You have 400 followers, babe, pipe down. And so suddenly you have to realize that it's not, that's not a unique response to people deciding to be more authentic and transparent under the lens or through the guise of social media or whatever. It's just how people respond to you acting differently to how you acted before. So I'm like, tread carefully, because I think a lot of people can get by not having to be 
the brand, the face, the person, the communicator. That was literally my next question. And I think it was probably yours as well. Do you think that it's necessary for business owners, brand founders to be the face of the brand or to put themselves out there in that way? And can, is there an alternative pathway to success? There is. I think it's beneficial if you're doing it strategically. Now that we're like this far into the internet and social media, we have very clear guidelines of how to do internet well. And so if you decide that you want to be the face of your brand, if you're not prepared to express what you think, why you think it, how you thought it, where you bought it, where you're going tomorrow, be mindful of even if that strategy of being the face is going to work for you. Because people are only going to want more information. They're only going to want more context. It's a slippery slope. I was going to say, is it all or nothing? Like if you're going to do it, you've got to go balls to the wall and do it? Yeah. Or not do it at all? I, yeah, I think so. And I just don't, I don't love this whole idea of being extreme, mm. but like there are so many indications, representations of people who have been the face of their brand and their brand has collapsed because their audiences no longer respond to them. So for example, Kat Von D, she is a makeup artist, a tattooist, and she mm. has this huge beauty and cosmetic brand called Kat Von D Beauty. Now, Obviously, the brand is her name, so you can't really separate the two. She is the brand, the brand is her, and we move on. However, she generated her fame in a time of the internet that was very MySpace. If you weren't really on MySpace, then you might not really know who she is in the same way you don't know who Elizabeth Arden is. Like, who is that? It's just the brand name. So as she started, you know, growing her social media following, she's got hundreds of thousands of followers. People are like, oh, my God, this is so amazing because she is the brand and I can resonate with her until she got pregnant, Mm. until she said that she wasn't going to vaccinate her kids. Mm. And then suddenly people don't want to use the eyeliner anymore because I'm um, validating this anti-vaxxer. And then the brand in itself that should remain in this really safe bubble is now under heaps of scrutiny. And so people went from scrutinizing her to scrutinizing the brand, to scrutinizing its values, to scrutinizing the products. And then suddenly, Kat Von D is not on the shelves like that anymore. Mm, it all fell down. It's not the eyeliner you want to buy. No. People don't want to buy the lipstick anymore. And so suddenly you're kind of like, well, how can the brand exist? And so they changed their name, right? They changed their name to Kat Von D Vegan Beauty and were bought out by the same people who own Fenty Beauty. But it's still KVD. Like, we all know it. We've seen it. And people don't want to be perceived as someone who's validating or supporting an anti-vaxxer. So now they're kind of like, oh, let's step away. So I just feel as though consumers have been conditioned to expect content in a certain way, especially on the younger end of the spectrum. Let's say millennials are your target demographic. Well, they're used to experiencing content in a far different way, especially with these new platforms coming up where people are getting on the, on their cameras, no makeup, talking about IBS and depression and failed marriages. If you can't keep up in that way, then you need to carve out a very specific lane for yourself that you can keep up and that your audience will resonate with. So they can expect when I come to you, I might not get your what I eat in a day or a meal plan, but I will get some really open dialogue about how you're feeling and how that's going to impact the brand. And then that in itself will feel like enough. Mm. How far can you push it? I mean, you said it's a content game and also like, the you know, the young kids, that's what they're growing up with. It's all content and you're heavily driven by content Mm. where do like how do you draw a boundary around it 
I'm the wrong person to ask. Because <laughs> yeah, I'm that. only now trying to reverse engineer how do mm. I create or maintain this illusion of openness when now I'm probably, I think before I was way open, mm. no holds barred. And now I'm like, I just don't get paid enough to be sharing how I feel every day just for your entertainment. And I think for me, I really started to understand people want two things on the internet. Mm. They want education and they want entertainment. If Mm -hmm. it doesn't fit within those two silos, then it doesn't work at all. That's a really interesting, that's a good framework. But I think that with people starting now, like if this is today you're making a decision, it's tricky because as much as strategy is required, so much of what we've learned about the internet in the last year is the ability to pivot. So much of us spent so much time figuring out how to Instagram and now we need to learn how to TikTok. And And Clubhouse. And Clubhouse and and all of these Mm -hmm. things that seem really, you know, insignificant. But in reality, it's really skewing the way your audience is going to expect to interact with you. So I feel like nowadays I move through the internet thinking of like, what is my capacity to give and what is necessary? Because my issue Mm. isn't generating conversation. That's really easy for me to do because I've done it before. My issue is how not to give too much of myself when my audience would be fine with 5% of me. Do you, do you get content fatigue? I was going to say, do you mm-hmm. find it all consuming and how yeah. do you actually manage it? Because you produce so much, so much content. Like mm. how do you manage it from a business perspective, from an energetic perspective and mm-hmm. just from a time perspective? It's tricky because my strategy is like 110% burnout. 110% burnout, right. mm. 110% burnout. And so my strategy these days is me first, content second, as opposed to content first and me second. Mm. And so the distinction I make between the two is you might see people who will get up on a day, know they have to do accounting, admin and everything, but will sit there for five hours to perfect a three-second GIF. That's content first, you second, Right. So with me, I'm like, today, for example, I know I've got to be here. I've got to be in the warehouse. So Mm -hmm. what I can do is create content around what I'm actually doing and then milk that for the whole day. And that's really easy for me to do because I'm happy to share what this experience is and I'm happy to share what I'll be doing in the warehouse. But that creates a solution to a very difficult problem that I didn't figure out until five years into doing whatever this is. Because before I was like, my audience expects, they expect the fresh, fun, funky, cool. And it's like, no, in reality, your audience expects what you give them. Mm. So mm. if you change what you give them, then you create a new expectation. And so that's what I have been learning to do. And it's very easy to fall back into, let me do what's been done, because that's the way we've been trained. Like, we'll have to take the glam shot, the flat lay, you know, the ask me anything question box. And all of that is just too much. And I feel like it's taken me a little while to understand what too much is because as someone who's used to doing a lot, I'm like, I don't know, I've got the capacity, I'll just do. But for now, I'm like, do just enough consistently Mm -hmm. as opposed to too much in waves and then drop off completely. Also, I feel like the biggest thing that's helped me create content in a way that's manageable is like, Take away the production value. Like, I see people with their DSLRs, <laughs> six ring lights, a reflector. <laughs> not have six no, 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 no. We have a broken ring light. <laughs> no, right. yeah, 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 six ring simple. lights, a reflector, the microphone. And in some mediums, it's necessary. Like a podcast, you actually do need the good mic. You can't 
you can't. Oh, yeah, not sorry, this, cut we can't. Yes, yeah, we, we you do can't need this. cut corners. But for example, people really struggle with creating content for social media platforms because of the way they're choosing mm. to do it. They're going all out for one image when in reality, you know that you need 60 images. And so, how will you get that in the time that you allot for yourself? The more polished the content, the less human the content feels and the less it can be trusted. Mm. People want to see the blush on textured skin. Mm. People want to know that you have corns and calluses. Mm -hmm. People want to know that this meal was a little bit tricky to cook, but we got through it. This is what people are interested in. And because we're on the perspective of, but I want to be polished. I don't want to seem amateur. It's like you're doing yourself a disservice because your audience has already told you, we just want it, whatever it is. The more effort you put into it, it looks like you're hiding or trying to omit what's actually there. Like filters at one point were seen as a way to elevate the way you looked. And now that bell curve, it looks as a way to like omit how you look or to be deceitful. So just be mindful. Like in a day, my audience will respond far better to me being like, hey, everyone, do you want to play a quick game of reflex? Let's do it. As opposed to me being like, here's an amazing photo shoot I did. Do you like it? Crickets. It's quiet. (laughs) Nobody cares. Or if I'm talking to the camera and I'm saying, you know, today was a really hard day. I don't really feel like doing anything, so I'm not going to do anything. And then waves of engagement come in because someone's been like, oh, my goodness, I was wondering how you had the capacity to do so much. How would you advise founders or business owners doing that if they aren't associated or attached with the brand? Like if there's a you know, clothing brand mm-hmm. or a beauty brand that doesn't have the founder attached to it, mm-hmm. How do you maintain that sense of like authenticity and realness? Yeah. So let's do a clothing brand, for example. And let's say you're, so you don't want to be the face of the brand. That's not what you're interested in, but you do want to maintain this sense of being alive and being aware. Easy. Do what you would do without your face. If you're drinking a coffee to start the day, snap a photo of the coffee. Starting the day, this is the to-do list. Hope I get it done. Any advice for maintaining a schedule? waves of engagement will come in because it's like, oh, I drink coffee too. I'm up as well. I used to do it, whatever. Then you're getting into the office. That whole journey is content. Getting in the car, what track am I playing? Is there traffic? Obviously, don't do this while you're driving. Just like, (laughs) you know, play a little Britney Spears, film it on the iPhone, track of the day, done. You're, You're a human. Everyone's like, I listen to music. I like Britney. This clothing brand also likes Britney. I wonder what else is coming. You get to the office. You might do a quick pan of the building. We're in the office today. You know, this is whoever works here. If it's just you. We're in the office. Here's the boxes I need to unpack. Doing a bit of VM. Take a photo of the mannequin. Take a photo of the clothing tags. You know, tell someone the story of, you know, did you know how I got these clothing tags made? Oh, it was it was terrible. I was working with a manufacturer. You know, they got the label wrong. We got it reprinted. It cost a bit of money. We got it done. These are all things that people want to know. And they seem like really silly piece of content for you because it's your bread and butter. You know what the story was. You've been here every day. The fluorescence are the same to you. But to your audience, they've never seen this before. And if I know anything about audiences, they're nosy. They want to see what they haven't seen before. And what they haven't seen before is, quote unquote, realness. And that in itself is is a switch. And it really is a whole skill to understand that you can still be perceived as a credible business without being polished. Because that's not what we've been taught. But the closer or the sooner you understand, it's almost like asking yourself, what do you look for in the people that you follow? Mm -hmm. What do you register as being credible and legitimate? 
And you'll find it's not the person who's done the campaign images and the polished interview with the whoever, whoever. It's the person who's like, hey, this is a huge deal for us. We're so excited to be here and it's how many years in the making and probably aren't making enough money right now, but it doesn't matter. And suddenly everyone's like, oh my God, this is, I can relate to this. This is a thing. Yeah, 100%. I think you've nailed it. And, you know, it obviously sounds like you know your shit. You know your content shit well and truly. I want to pivot slightly. I want to talk about some of your epic brand partnerships and collaborations. You've worked with some big names. You've Mm. worked with Spotify, Hey Tiger, Fluff. I mean, there's so many more. Yeah. Tell us about these partnerships. How did they come about and how are you working with them? Mm. I would go on record, Sam, hard to work with only because I know exactly what things mean and I know how value is generated. So like, let's talk collaborations, for example. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about Spotify. So when I was approached to commission a podcast for Spotify, I think some people would be like, oh my goodness, huge legacy brand. This is so exciting. The first of the first. This is great. And in my head, I'm thinking, do I have ownership over my ideas? Am I allowed to pick and choose how this gets to be recorded? Um, Is it just using my likeness to perpetuate a narrative of can I control the narrative? This is what I'm thinking of because if that isn't how it's going to be, then it's not worth it for me. So let's use Spotify as an example. So the first hurdle with that was that's a whole corporation and I'm one person. So how does this actually happen? How do I transition you know, what I do here into what needs to be done there. And so it was actually Fremantle who was like, we'll produce it for you on behalf of Spotify and we'll work together. Sounds great. But in my head, I'm like, well, then who owns the idea? Mm. If, you know, Fremantle is paying for it, but Spotify is commissioning it, but I'm creating it. Well, then who owns the idea and who gets to make the creative decision and who gets sign off and all of these things that comes together. So I would say like the contractual period probably went for like a month. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I don't understand. Like this contract doesn't make sense. Mm. And I don't believe that people are out to exploit Mm. individuals. That's not the case. But I do think we have to be mindful of any collaborator, no matter how small or big, is working this in a way that's beneficial to them. So you need to understand how it's beneficial to them so you can generate or understand how it's going to be beneficial to you also. So if a brand just needs your likeness or your brand association to give life to their brand, that's fine. But what is it going to cost you? And what is the actual dollar amount that you can put to it so it's valuable to you? And so, you know, that was the the early stages, the big question of who owns it and my licensing and, and who gets paid for their work. And once that got sorted, which took about a month, then it was the actual production of it. And it was almost like, okay, I know what I would like this to be, but the production company obviously has the expertise and they know how they would like it to be. But there's a conversation between what I know that I want to do and what my audience will resonate with versus what is being done and what is a industry standard. And that I think is a lot of push and pull. It's huge push and pull for people who are used to doing things for themselves and people who are used to doing things for a generic audience. And so I was kind of like, I totally understand, you know, things need to be said a certain way. I need to enunciate a certain way. But I also know that this body of work is going to be pushed to my audience because 
you're not commissioning me for no reason. You're commissioning me because of my reach and my audience and my brand appeal. So if that's the case, then I want people who, who know me to feel like this feels like me. Another conversation. And then we we spent maybe like two weeks recording it and then blah, blah, blah. So I say that all to say like the deals in themselves are huge and they're very exciting, but they also mean nothing if you don't know why you're being contacted and what value you're expecting from it either. Like working with Hey Tiger, so much fun because for the Reflex brand, the conversation cards, what I found to be hardest is to find someone who also is building the foundations of their brand on conversation, on generating like intimacy and mm-hmm. all of those things. And like, yes, of course, heaps of brands talk to their audiences and to each other, but conversations, it's not a foundational building material for them, but it was for me or it is for me and it is for Hey Tiger. And so that was like the easiest collaboration ever. It's like, what do you want to do? I want to generate conversations. What do you want to do? I want to generate conversations. What's the benefit of working with someone like me? I've got a reach. I can design the packaging. I already know what I want to do and how I want to do it. I'm happy to pay or I'm happy for you to pay. And they're like, great, we want to utilize your reach, but we also want a reason to remarket our product to a new audience. Fantastic. And suddenly there's no illusions about what we're doing and why we're working together. It's very clear what you need. It's very clear what I need. And so every decision we made ticked all of those boxes of what was expected. And then the things that came afterwards was like, you know, how to market it. But I think in my position, I was kind of like, I'm happy to do whatever is necessary to market this product because someone in my position who maintains their audience or builds their audience by doing new fun things, my audience is expecting new and fun and they almost don't care what it is. And so I have to kind of tread that almost like tread the tightrope of being like, what is this new fun thing that's going to generate a new audience and almost like entertain my existing audience? And it could be anything. It could be chocolate, it could be a sex toy, it could be a book, it could be a podcast. But with that in mind, that's my focus. How do I maintain my existing audience? How do I grow a new one? And anything that happens outside of that is just the cherry on top. You must have a million different ideas popping around in your brain. I mean, mm. you've got so many things on the go. You're in, you've got so many fingers in so many pies, it seems. How do you edit down those ideas and how do you figure out what ones to go after? Because I think that's one of the issues or the problems that founders face is like shiny mm. object syndrome. It's like, I want to do yeah. this, I want to do this, I want to do this. And it can be hard to narrow narrow focus. How do you do that? How do you narrow your focus? Or do, or do you? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I just um, do all the things. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what? What you're saying is exactly right. I think that we all have a tendency to want to do the thing. I think in my instance, my motivation to do the thing is who am I to say no when someone's offered me an amazing opportunity? Mm. That's my frame of work. I'm like, this is so exciting. Like, why would I say no to this? But how I pick is I do everything, not with the intent to keep doing it, but the intent to try it, see how it fares against what I'm already Mm -hmm. doing and reevaluate. So for example, running a conversation card business was not not the vibe. Didn't want to do it. <laughs> it's just not what I, it's not what it's I envisioned. It's not what I saw for myself. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't on my vision board. How am I here? <laughs> it's not what I envisioned, but I thought I can just try it once. And if it flops, it flops. But if it doesn't flop mm. and it rises to the top, then I can figure out, well, where does this sit in my order of priorities? And because while it can look a little bit haphazard or messy to try everything, 
I really do believe that audiences have such a short attention span and they're not holding on to what's been done. They're looking to be excited or moved by what is to come. Mm. So I recommend trying things and obviously use your own discretion as to if you actually need to try or if you're just flattered or if you're living with a scarcity mentality. These are all things that you would know about yourself best. But if it fits within your very specific framework, mine is, does this actually matter to me? Like, do I actually care whether or not I do or don't do this thing? Is the amount of income worth it? Because after tax, after super, after saving, suddenly... Oh, oh, yeah, it's a dollar off that one. Yeah, yeah. Like you're losing money. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on, I'm paying you. Let's go in here. Exactly. <laughs> Are we losing money? Yeah. That's not what we're here to do. That's terrible. You know, can I afford to exist in this space? Are there too many competitors? Mm. You know, I'm not trying to be the next Tiffany and Co. Who, we can't be the next Tesla. Not with this income. So we have to be mindful of what we're actually able to do. And then if it ticks your boxes, whatever boxes they might be, then you give it a red hot go. I was just going to ask, how much does data drive your decision making? Mm. For Flex Factory, a little and a lot. And it's in different areas. So in the early days, I used to really rely on my audience and the audience sentiment to dictate what we would do next. So, you know, what colour do you want next in this pillowcase, you know? What themes would you like in this conversation card? And then it soon dawned on me that my audience, and I think most audiences, don't answer realistically. They answer figuratively. Mm. Like, this is what I might like to talk about. This is a colour I might like. And I'm like, no, I need to know what you actually would do. So then I needed to start saying, I remember the day I said, do not participate in this survey if you do not intend to buy. And then suddenly 50% less people participated. And I'm like, this is the issue. What I was finding is that although I was receiving data, I wasn't framing the questions in a way that made the data useful. And then I also had to be mindful of a lot of the audience that we get for Flex Factory is taken from my existing audience. And the reason I have this audience is because I've been myself and I've done what I've wanted to and people have resonated. So it sounds bizarre to now lean on that audience for insight into how to do me best. And so in this instance, I was kind of like, okay, the best thing for you to do is to come up strategically with what you want to do and give it to your audience. And when I say give it to your audience, for example, let's say I'm making a conversation card game and I'm in the pretty much final stages of the art and the design and the questions. I'll drip feed it to my audience. What do you think about that question? Hmm? Do you like that art? Interesting. What themes would you like? And then I use that to validate the decision but I don't change too much because now they felt as though they've had some kind of insight mm. and they feel as though, oh, yeah, like I gave some insight. This is very exciting. I'm into it. But I can also rest on what I know to be true. However, like ads, website traffic, email marketing, all of these things that actually give you quantifiable data after you've done the thing that I trust because it's not necessarily fail safe and you do have to have like an analytical mind to discern what the data is even telling you. But you're in a better position to trust what that data is saying than to trust like qualitative data that you're generating from audiences who don't know why you're asking. So for example, if my uh, Shopify tells me that selling uh, one reflex game generates this much income, but selling two in a bundle that's slightly discounted generates more income, 
Well, then we push the bundles. Mm-hmm. Because in my head, I was saying, well, people don't want to spend more money, so I'll just offer the game separately Mm. and you can buy it as you want. When in reality, my audience is like, no, I want to save money, but I also want to want the thing. So how do I get the thing and not spend as much money? Similarly, if we're discounting, I used to think that an audience would respond well to a blanket discount. 20 bucks off, 20% off, however you want to, you know, phrase it or call it. And that does okay. You know what does better? What? Tell a us. gift with purchase. Yes. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. And the gift doesn't even have to be of huge value. Yeah. Like we, for um, pre-Valentine's Day, we created five limited edition reflex questions on love. And it's very inexpensive for us to produce just five cards, no box, no packaging, to go in pre-existing orders, you know. Mm. And like that in itself drove so much traffic to our website and produced way more sales than a blanket discount. People like the idea of perceived value. Value, yes. Totally. More than they like the idea of saving money. Yep. Like I want more than I have. I don't want to just get the thing for less than I could potentially get it for. And I think that differs with demographic. It differs with the price point of what you're selling. All They're all variables. But that is data that I'm like, oh, okay, I swear by that. That makes a lot of sense to me. So it is tricky. You need to understand how the data is being generated, how it can be skewed, and then use that insight and then use your understanding, your intuition, your gut feeling, you know, your expertise to also guide your decision making. So Lil, we're going to ask (laughs) some final questions. We're getting the wrap up. We would love to know what is one thing that you or your business is screaming at you for right now? Weirdly enough, more product. I think that we're at this point now where we've got a ton of people who have every single thing that we offer and keep asking us for more. And we're kind of like, well, we thought eight games was enough. We didn't anticipate fulfilling this additional need. We thought that would be enough. But in reality, no. So more product, oddly enough. Good problem. What's been one moment on this journey where you've kind of had this moment of like, how the fuck did I get here? Yeah, I would say it's when we moved away from a 3PL to fulfill our um, products and we took it in-house. So we got our own warehouse. That in itself was just a lot because as I said earlier, I wasn't prepared to run a card game business. So I was really doing everything within my power to not actually run it. Like I didn't want to ship the orders out. I didn't want to do the digital marketing. I didn't want to do the social media. I just wanted it to exist and it to run. I wasn't really even concerned about the revenue because I was like, I'm just offering a service here. So when we got to that point, we were like, okay, this 3PL is terrible. Like they actually are cannibalizing our business and I do have the capacity. I care enough about this product to take it in house. Mm -hmm. Suddenly I'm like, oh, I'm seeing all of this product and I'm seeing all of our customers and I'm actually looking at our accounts and I'm like, wow, (laughs) this is wild. (laughs) (laughs) And part of me is like, geez, like you should have done this a lot sooner. When you, because my business partner, when we actually started going through our accounts and like really understanding what products were selling well, what products were just like costing us to actually stock. um, I was like, it's it's all here. Like it could be so simple. And part of what I didn't understand until recently is that it is far simpler to have visibility over everything. And then what's the word I'm looking for? Outsource. And then outsource. We're so good at this. I know. There's some telepathic (laughs) thing happening here. And then outsource rather than outsource 
first. It might take mm. you long, longer to get a good understanding of your digital marketing or shipping or processes, but it's much better for you to understand it so you know what the value mm. of having somebody else do it is. And also what you're clear on your expectations of them. Mm-hmm. I, I totally hear yeah, you on that. Good. I completely I like agree that. with that. So you don't have to necessarily become an expert in it. You don't need to know how to do it entirely, but having an understanding yes. of it and then being able to outsource. Totally. That's the right. through line, understanding. We don't want to be yeah. experts, but just like, do you get it? Because if you don't, a quick YouTube video. YouTube. It's always there. YouTube it's or Google. That is what, yeah. Honestly. <laughs> And like podcasts like this as well. Like mm. there's so much I've understood about running the business purely from listening from, like, to other people do it. Totally. Like you're not going to understand the ins and outs and the intricacies of everything. But if you don't even get on a top line level, you have to do some studying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love that. We'd love to know, aside from more product, which is very exciting, mm. what's next for you? What else? What's on the horizon? Well, we've also got the Flex and Circle Home Furniture line, which yep. I'm just so excited by. Furniture's tricky. It's big. It's expensive. Like, margins are much lower than, like, a little product. But it's just really cool to conceptualise larger-scale ideas mm. and make them happen. So that would be so sick. And then also I feel like I've got my book coming out, which is really exciting. But I'm just excited to, like, do less. Yeah. In a roundabout way. Like, I feel as though I've done a few things that I'm really excited about. And this year I'll be doing more of those things. But I'm just really motivated by actually reveling in some of my achievements Mm. and saying, how about we work towards things that would gratify you in the long term? You know what I would love? What? Tell us. To renovate a house. I love To even own a house. Yeah. Why can't I have an orange toilet? And yellow tiles. You can. You know, why can't I have six archways and no doors? You can. I can. You, you can. And you will. And that is what, after this year, I'm like, let's laser focus on something that's a little bit more important to me. Because business to me at the moment is a skill that I'm utilizing because I have the means and like the awareness to do so. But what I'm finding out through therapy is just because you can doesn't mean you should. Uh. <laughs> and so that is like a nice... It's an easy realisation for me to come to because I have canned, I have done some things. And so I feel resolved to not do a few things in a couple of years and then get back to it. But if you haven't done your first thing, I can understand why, you know, folding before you've started is not a good idea. You should definitely not fold. (laughs) Keep zooming. But for me, I've proved my own point, I think. Yeah, you've proven yourself and now you have the ability to say no and choose the things that you want to do, which Mm -hmm. is amazing and so exciting. Um, Thank you so much. What an epic chat. Thanks, Lil. That was awesome. (laughs) You're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome anytime. (laughs) Flex, what a dream. This chat reinforced the importance of building relationships with your customers and your community and doing this one-on-one. Have chats with your customers in the DMs and really get to know who they are. The insights you'll get from these conversations are absolute gold and critical when it comes to building your brand. Secondly, when creating your content, think about whether it falls within the education or the entertainment bucket. You really want to be teaching your audience something they don't know, or you want to surprise them or make them laugh. This is how you generate engagement and cut through in a really crowded social media landscape. And lastly, take a me-first approach to content creation. It is so easy to get sucked into the content vortex, feeling like you're on the hamster wheel of pumping it out day after day. Consider how you can be a little bit more efficient and streamlined in your content creation process. 
If you want some tips and tricks, we've popped a quick video in our Facebook group. Just search Lady Brains and you'll find us. That's it for this episode. Remember to subscribe to our show so you don't miss any of our new chats. You can also head over to our website, ladybrains.com.au and sign up to our monthly newsletter. Lady Brains is hosted by Anna McKenzie and Caitlin Judd. The producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Matt Nikolic.